I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. My goodness, you saints must have a lot of Baptist in you because you're not letting a little water stop you. Uh, and I greet all you Methodists who are worshiping online with us today. The last few Sundays, we've considered how to build a foundation for life, comparing the building of a life to the building of a house. And several weeks ago, Jeff reminded us that the house must have a great cornerstone, and Jesus is the perfect one. And then last week, we were taught that the framework of the house is more important than the furnishings. And today, we are going to consider what Jesus meant when he urged us to build our houses on the second mile. And our scripture is Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt or tunic, hand over your coat or cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. <clears throat> Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word Lord Jesus, amen. The late motion picture executive Louis B. Mayer, founder of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, used to tell about an experience he had as a boy. One day he got into a fight with another kid and he lost the fight. And uh, when he got home, his mother began to bathe his uh, black eye. And all the time, Lewis was telling her that, that the fight was all the other kid's fault. And he told her all the awful things about this boy that he had the fight with. His mother said nothing. But when she finished working on his eye, she took him out into the backyard. And just beyond their backyard were some specially situated hills that created a marvelous echo effect. So his mother said, Lewis, shout loudly every bad thing you can think about that kid you had a fight with. And all oh, Lewis was gladly willing to do it, and he let it roll. And back it came from those hills with the echo effect. And after he had finished, then his mother said, now I want you to shout, God bless you. Well, Lewis didn't want to do that, but he did anyway. 
And sure enough, those blessed words came rolling back to him, God bless you. And Lewis B. Mayer says that he never forgot that experience because it taught him what you send out will always come back. Now, Jesus taught a similar lesson in our scripture for the morning. Uh, this is part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And the last part of it, the last part of chapter 5 in Matthew's gospel, is the most radical part. It deals with the way we treat people who are difficult, people who oppose us, dislike us, maybe even hate us. Jesus gave us specific directions for how to deal with them. Now, for a thousand years, the, the Jews had followed Moses' direction found in Exodus chapter 21, verse 23. We know it is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It reads, if there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. That is simply called revenge. And it's still pretty popular today. You see it sometimes in sports. In baseball, there is such a thing called as a brushback pitch. And a brushback pitch is when the pitcher throws a 90-mile-an-hour fastball at the batter, forcing him to back out of the batter's box because the pitcher doesn't want him to settle in to the batter's box and be ready to pick out a good pitch to hit. But as soon as that brushback pitch is thrown, as soon as there's a change in sides and another pitcher comes to the mound, it is expected that he will throw a second brushback pitch just to retaliate, just simple revenge. And then usually the fight breaks out. But in our scripture for the morning, Jesus replaced Moses' guidance with a more divine model Jesus was telling us that demanding strict justice or revenge just extends the animosity and almost prevents any kind of reconciliation. And when taken to extremes, it leads to the kind of Hatfield versus McCoy feud that went on for years and years in the mountains of West Virginia. Jesus taught a radical alternative to revenge. And in verse 39 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, do not resist an evil person. Now, the word resist there is an accurate translation of the Greek, but it has a different meaning for us today than it did in the first century. Jesus is not commanding us to refuse to defend ourselves and those we love. Uh, remember, Jesus taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves, not more than ourselves. Instead of for our ears, what Jesus is really saying is do not retaliate. Do not retaliate. Yes, there are exceptional situations when we should refuse to defend ourselves. The great Indian leader Gandhi and our own Martin Luther King Jr. taught us that nonviolence in defense of a just cause, is more powerful than violence. But in our daily lives, in the normal give and take of where we live, it is not wrong to defend ourselves and those we love. 
In fact, we know for a fact that Jesus' disciples carried swords. Well, why do you suppose they carried swords? To protect themselves from robbers and other criminals. The Reverend Cleveland Duke of Akron is a part-time judo instructor. That's right. A pastor is a part-time judo instructor. And this is what he tells his students. I teach you what to do after you've turned both cheeks. Jesus was saying, protect yourselves and those we love and those you love, but don't retaliate. As St. Paul taught, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And in that same 39th verse of Matthew 5, Jesus used an example that must have absolutely shocked his Jewish audience. Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, Jesus is not referring here to a fist fight, but to an insult, to an insult. Now, in those days, most people were right-handed as they are today. So if I wanted to strike a person on his right cheek, I would have to hit him with the back of my hand. Well, in Jesus' day, and even today, that's considered a gross insult. So Jesus is saying to us, don't return insult for insult. Don't go tit for tat. You know, one of the endearing things about our former governor, Nikki Haley, is that when she was attacked by another politician, she had a way of smiling and saying, well, bless your heart. <laughs> In verse 40, Jesus takes his lesson into the legal field. Jesus said, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, this calls for a little explanation about clothing in the first century. Most men wore a long underwear garment that was rather cheap. Most men had three or four. But then they had a cloak also, which was a heavy, expensive outer garment. And most men had only one of those. The Jewish law said that you could sue a person for their tunic, that long underwear thing, but not for their cloak. Why? Because that cloak was often their blanket if they slept outdoors. Every man needed his cloak. And so the Jewish law said you could not sue him. You could sue him for his tunic, but not for his cloak. What is Jesus saying? Don't stand on your legal rights if it interferes with serving your neighbor. Don't stand on your legal rights if it interferes with serving your neighbor. Now, at this point, just imagine how startled Jesus' audience was. But then, he really sent them into shock because he stepped into the most volatile and bitter controversy of that day. You see, First century Palestine was under the control of the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers had conquered Israel. They had soldiers posted in every town on every corner. And there was a Roman law that said if a soldier tapped you on the shoulder, he could force you to carry his load, his military pack, whatever he had, his burden. He could force you to carry it up to one mile, 1,000 paces. 
Now, the, the Jews hated this law. It made them feel like slaves before the Romans. And just imagine some proud Jew. Roman soldier taps him on the shoulder, hands him his military gear, says, carry this. And just imagine this proud Jew counting out loud those 1,000 paces. And when he gets to 1,000, throwing the pack on the ground and stalking off in anger. Jesus said, don't react that way. Don't react that way. Instead, surprise that Roman soldier. Say, would you like for me to carry it farther? Now, just imagine the groans that elicited from Jesus' Jewish audience. What was Jesus telling us? Life has a way of laying obligations on us, and some of them are irksome, difficult, hurtful, costly. If you do nothing more than endure what life thrusts on you, your life will be mediocre at best. But if you do more than life requires, that's what it means to build your house on the second mile. If you top off every task with a little extra, with a touch of class, that's the secret of victorious living. Jesus calls us Christians to build our houses on the second mile. The main difference between mediocre and exceptional people it's not brains, it's not luck, it's not connections. It boils down to just three words. The words are, and then some, and then some. Exceptional people do what is expected of them, and then some. They are considerate and thoughtful of others, and then some. They meet their obligations fairly and squarely, and then some. They are good friends to their friends and treat their enemies better than they deserve, and then some. The choice between living on the first and the second mile makes a huge difference in school and career. Now, the, any students who may be here, or if you're a parent or grandparent of a student, you can pass it on. The gospel of the second mile can help every student. In most college courses, if you want to earn a B, the recipe is pretty simple. You just take good notes in class, do the assigned reading, and feed it back to the professor on the exam. You'll get a B. Ah, but what about that A? Now, not that I made a whole lot of them myself in school, but I noticed the people who did. And by the way, I noticed a whole lot of them were young women. I never have figured that one out. But I watched, and I noticed... And you know what got them the A? It was the little extra. Yeah. They not only did the assigned reading, they did some of the suggested reading. They brought in an extra report or a project. It was in that little extra that the A's were given. And that same principle holds over in your career, in your, in your work, your vocation. The really outstanding folks not only accomplish the assigned task, but they do it with a touch of class, a little extra. I heard about a Red Cross worker somewhere who was uh, assigned to advertise a blood bank. And she could have put out some bland statement about, give blood now, the need is great. 
She didn't. This is the advertisement she came up with. Before going on vacation, donate blood. Mosquitoes don't give free coffee and donuts. We do. There's the creative edge. There's the little extra. The successful secretary proofreads a letter twice so that her boss's message is clear and accurate. The successful paper boy finds out exactly where the customer wants his paper placed and puts it there. The successful teacher thinks of some illustration or object that will help convey a concept to students. The successful car dealer provides free transportation for customers while their cars are being serviced. The successful pharmacist utilizes computer technology so that customers can request medical refills, medicine refills 24 hours a day without any problem. There'll always be a demand for people who perform the assigned task well and then add something extra. They live on the second mile. Now, the gospel of the second mile also applies to marriage. Don't let anybody tell you that marriage is a 50-50 proposition. It's not. Those who believe it is end up standing on different sides of the 50-yard line squabbling about who's going to apologize first. No, marriage is a 75-75 proposition. Each one has to go 75% of the way. And it's in that blessed overlap that the great marriages are made. Let me ask you, married couples, honest question. Have you ever given the other, your spouse, the silent treatment? Now, if you say no, I, I'm going to remind you of my sermon online that I gave some time back. <laughs> All of us have done that. It's so silly and so useless. Even a fairly mature sixth grader would call it childish. And what does it accomplish? Nothing. Except steal a couple of days of good life from us. When a marriage is built on the second mile, the husband brings home some roses for his wife when there's no occasion at all. The wife sticks a love note in his coat or briefcase that he'll discover during the day. The husband and wife have regular date nights years after they married. Each one is willing to visit the in-laws because that's a sign of love for the spouse. Phones are turned off during mealtimes so that they can concentrate on each other. And before they go to sleep at night, they pray together and they kiss each other and say, I love you. That's what marriage looks like on the second mile. Now, we've talked about the second mile in school, career, marriage. Now, let's take it where it becomes more difficult. Standing up for Christ in a secular culture. It was back in the 1960s when God got demoted in America. Gradually, God's standards got replaced by secular standards. We Christians were told, if you want to talk about your faith, do it at home or in church, but out in the public sector, be quiet. Don't take your faith into public schools or the public square because it might offend somebody. Oh, we kept our motto on our money, in God we trust, but the courts told us 
that that was simply ceremonial, a relic of the past, and meant nothing. God's leadership in the culture was replaced by high finance, big government, the arts, and entertainment. And the seeds planted in the 1960s produced noxious, poisonous weeds that have been growing, sprouting ever since in the form of crime and violence, sexual degeneracy, and abortion. In the words of Judge Robert Bork, America has been slouching toward Gomorrah. Visit any major city in America and you'll see the victims of Gomorrah living in tents amid their own filth, looking for the next dope. Today in America, much of the bitter culture war that you encounter on TV, Twitter, Facebook, is really a battle between secular and biblical standards. How can we be faithful to God's truth without being obnoxious? How can we be bold for Christ without being a jerk? How can we speak the truth in love? Today, most movies blaspheme God's holy name. And when we buy an admission ticket, we support it. Obscenities are increasingly accepted on most TV programs. In this culture, how can a Christian truly represent Christ? We dare not be intimidated into silence. It would be cowardly to hide our witness for fear of being shunned or canceled or criticized. Jesus, after all, called us the light of the earth. And he said, let your light shine before men. How can we do that in a secular culture like this? Recently, I was playing golf with a Christian friend. And as we rode along together in the golf cart, he said, Brother Bill, I got a problem. He said, um, I have this golfing companion, this friend. Uh, our games are rather similar. We enjoy competing against each other. The problem is he uses profanity continually, uh, curses in God's name, and it grates on my very soul. And I don't know what to do about it. I, I hate to break up our friendship, but I don't believe I can keep playing with this guy uh, if he keeps doing that. He said, I don't think he means anything by it. I think it's just a bad habit. But I don't know what to do about it. I said, brother, I got a suggestion. I don't think it's original with me, but I'll pass it on to you. I said, the next time you and this friend are together in a golf cart and he profanes God's holy name, turn to him and say, if you knew how much God loves you, you could not use his name that way. Notice that statement lifts up the love of God but does not criticize or condescend to the other person. If you knew how much God loves you, you could not use his name that way. 
And you're welcome to write that down and use it if God gives you a chance. If you knew how much God loves you, you could not use his name that way. Our strategy begins by regarding our secular opponent as a potential friend, not an enemy, because God loves him too. We must be willing to listen carefully and respectfully even to opinions that offend us. We must learn to speak without anger, to discuss rather than argue, and our Truth must be clearly anchored to this book, not to our opinions. Only if it's attached to this book is it truly the truth. And if the discussion gets heated and you can tell it's headed toward an argument, we've got to learn to say, my brother, I respect your opinion, but we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Those who build their house on the second mile choose love over hate. They cannot betray God's truth, but neither can they fail to love. Why do we choose to build our houses on the second mile? It's not to make us look good. It is not to be successful or make money or win public approval. Why do we build our house on the second mile? Because... God has gone the extra mile for us all the way to the cross of Calvary. We've been loved and forgiven extravagantly. And our gratitude must be extravagant too. And we must pass it on to all. Many years ago, the actor and comedian, Eddie Cantor, was growing up on the lower east side of uh, New York City. And in order to earn a little extra money, he would run errands for the housewives who lived in his tenement building. And the housewives would often send him to a particular grocery store 10 blocks away, even though there were larger grocery stores closer. And so one day, Eddie decided to go to one of the closer stores But as soon as he got back, the housewife who sent him noticed he had not gone where she had instructed and she scolded him because of it. So next time Eddie went to that one 10 blocks away, he decided to see what was so special about that grocery store. And all he could discover was the grocer made a lot of mistakes. When the order called for 12 rolls, he gave 13. When the order called for six bananas, he would put in a seventh at no extra charge. And so with boyish pride, Eddie Cantor said to the grocer, you're making a lot of mistakes. And the grocer replied, son, those aren't mistakes. It never hurts to give a little extra. If that philosophy dictates your lifestyle, you're living on the second mile. What a great place to build your house. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, 
Show us how to build our houses on that blessed second mile. Not so that we can look good or be successful, but so that you will be glorified. Fill our hearts with so much of your grace that it will overflow and touch someone who needs it. This we ask in the name that is above every name, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.